I have the pleasure of sitting down with uh, Philip Slayton, who's written some fantastic books. Philip, would you mind giving a brief introduction of yourself for individuals who might not know you? It's not, there's not much to say, Aaron, but I'll do what I try my best. Uh, I don't know if I believe that. Uh, I'm, I'm a lawyer by trade. Uh, I was a legal academic for some years, and I practiced law on the dreaded, much-feared Bay Street of Toronto. And I gave that up about 20 years ago and devoted myself to writing books. My most recent book is my eighth. And I've covered a wide, wide range of subjects, mostly legal-related or in a vague kind of way. Although I wrote a book about tennis, which had nothing to do with the law. So that that's about it, Aaron. Brilliant. Would you mind walking us through, how did you end up in law school? What made you interested in the field to begin with? Um, maybe you're more idealistic, optimistic about uh, the can profession. I, can I tell you the honest story? Absolutely. Nothing idealistic about it. Um, I was studying overseas, uh, graduate studies in England. I, was, I started work on a PhD in international relations, and it was not going well. And one evening, I was complaining to a friend of mine, who is now a very distinguished lawyer in Winnipeg, David made a distinguished human rights lawyer. He was also studying in the same place I was. And I was complaining to him about this. And I said, David, this is not going well. This is not going to end well for me. And he said, well, why don't you switch to law? I said, good idea. And the next day, I did. <laughs> so, oh, such accidents lives are made, right? <laughs> What was your experience like? Can you talk about Oxford? Can you talk about some of the experiences you had? Well, Oxford was a, I mean, I went there as a Manitoba Rhodes Scholar. Um, it was initially quite strange and intimidating. I mean, this was back in the 60s. It's a very different place today. It was strange and intimidating. It took a while to kind of figure out you know, how you how you've lived, let alone flourished. How you flourished, let alone lived in this environment. But eventually, I came to really like it really enjoy it. I think I got a great deal out of it. Uh, there were a lot of smart people that both teach against fellow students. And it was a, you know, an intellectually stimulating environment. And it, I got a great deal out of it. It was wonderful for me. Brilliant. And so when did you decide to move in this other direction, start working on books? Was there a passion for that? Well, I mean, I was practicing more on Bay Street, as I mentioned before. Uh, where the main occupation is making rich people a little bit richer. as a, The main occupation is a lawyer. That's what lawyers on Bay Street do. They make the rich a bit richer. And after a while, you might say to yourself, this is not really serving a very useful social purpose. Um, I mean, it, you know, it's stimulating. It's interesting. I had a lot of very interesting clients. did a lot of interesting things. But after a while, I just got tired of it, and I began to doubt its social utility, which I cared about. Um, and I found myself financially fairly stable. I said, okay, I'm going to try and write a book. I, so I, I left my law firm, and I wrote my first non-academic book, which was called Lawyers Gone Bad. And, and that was 2007 that was published. And it's, it still is my best-selling book, my first book, Lawyers Gone Bad. Um, most most members of the legal profession hated it because they felt it was a slur on the profession, which it wasn't really if they read it carefully. Uh, the, 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 the then president of the Canadian Bar Association sent uh, uh, a memo out, an email out to all the members of the Canadian Bar Association, which is about 50,000 people, and said, this is a terrible book by a terrible person. Don't buy it. Now... Aaron, if you got a, a memo or an email from the president of the Canadian Bar Association, <laughs> they don't buy this. But what would you do? I'd buy it immediately. <laughs> so my publisher rang me up and said, this is wonderful. We love this. <laughs> and, that, and then in this way, my, my writing career began. Fascinating. And so what, was, what were some of the highlights from that book for people who may be hearing about it for the first time? Uh, what was maybe the, the thesis? Well, there was a number of, if you will, case studies of lawyers who had got into trouble in various ways. But there was, I think, I hope, some big ideas emerged from the book. One of them has to do with the regulation of the legal profession. I mean, I was of the view then, and I think I still am of the view, that although bar associations say they're there to protect the public, in fact, what they're really there for 
is to protect the legal profession, not the public. There's ample evidence all over the place of that over long periods of time. That was one theme. Another theme was that there were some things in the nature of a legal education and in the nature of a legal practice that made lawyers kind of insensitive to the rules and norms of society. Because after what many lawyers spend their time doing, they spend their time helping clients get away with things, to put it bluntly, or to get you know, to maneuver around rules, or to interpret rules in such a way that they don't really apply if the rules of the client doesn't want to apply to them. After a while, you get in the habit of devaluing rules, but not thinking that rules are all that important. And, and then eventually that can invade the personal space. You can think they're not very important for you either. So you may dip into your trust funds or behave in some other way that's not. Now, this is not the overwhelming majority of the legal process is not like this. Let me quickly emphasize that. But there are exceptions. And I think there's some general ideas, lessons to be learned from the exceptions. So that was what that book was about. Yeah, you think of like a normal distribution and the outliers are often very interesting cases because while they're not representative of the norm, they are representative of a, a perverse incentive being pulled to its absolute maximum, right? Yeah, but some of the opportunities they may have had to behave badly were opportunities presented to them by their profession, by their occupation. And also, as I like to say sometimes, failure is so much more interesting than success. So bad behavior is always so much more interesting than good behavior. Agreed. Uh, separating the two, do you feel like the, you're still very proud of the law and maybe not some of the actors who operate within it? Um, I'm always fascinated by our legal system, um, by some of the, the logical matrixes that it follows. Um, do you still have a passion for the law, even if no, it's not a passion? I don't. Um, I still have a great, I wouldn't say I'm proud of it, I have a great respect for certain parts of the law. After all, law is vital to our existence as a civilized, peaceful, prosperous society, absolutely vital. But the law is a huge body of rules of all different kinds uh, that are applied in all kinds of different ways. And the profession, the legal profession, is extremely diverse. I mean, you, there's a huge difference, for example, between a criminal defense lawyer and a corporate tax lawyer. Huge difference. It could be they live in different worlds and do different things. So it's very hard to make generalizations about it. But in general, I don't have a passion for the law, but I certainly recognize its importance and I respect it. And I think there are many members of the legal profession who are faithful servants of the law and of society. But of course, there are exceptions to that. Interesting. Uh, I definitely want to talk about Nothing Left to Lose, which is sitting right right behind me. Um, it's a really interesting conversation to me. So I'd like to hear about how this book came about for you. Um, when did it say, I need to write this book? It was actually suggested to me by a publisher who said, this is this is a book I think you should write. This was somebody that I had served on the Penn Canada board with. I don't know if you know about Penn Canada. It's a Well, Penn is an international organization devoted to really the protection of freedom of expression. And Penn Canada is its Canadian chapter, and I was I was president of it for a time. And this particular man who was a publisher was on the board, and so we knew each other. We crossed swords occasionally, but we knew and respected each other. And as publisher, he said, this is a book I think you should write. I think this is the right book for you to write. And I was a little reluctant at first. It wasn't my idea initially. It was his idea. Uh, but I came around to thinking, yes, this would be an interesting thing to do, and maybe I could have a and a fresh take on what constitutes freedom, what it is, what it really means to talk about freedom. I mean, the word freedom and the concept of freedom is widely banded about, never more so than recently, freedom convoy, for example. But I think it's used in a often in a misleading, slapdash, uh, ignorant way. It's used for political purposes sometimes the way it should not be used. So I thought, yeah, fresh look at what freedom really is, or what are the constituent parts of it, uh, and where we are in this country, our country, Canada, when it comes to freedom, would be worth doing. So that's what I try to do. Interesting. How do you define freedom? Well, I'm somebody who is a great believer in freedom, and in particular, in freedom of expression. I'm a, I'm a, if, if I said I wasn't passionate about the law, that may be true, but I'm certainly passionate about freedom of expression. Um, 
When it comes to freedom, though, I what, what is freedom? I often think back to my first year political science professor at the University of Manitoba. I remember him, him setting an exam question which said this. It, it was a quotation. And the quotation was, just as a room is not a room without walls, so freedom is not freedom without limits. Discuss. And I think there's a very important point buried in that. There's no such thing as absolute freedom if absolute freedom is no freedom at all. Correct. Freedom is something that is big and expansive and important, but not unlimited. And in order to protect the important parts of it, sometimes you have to limit some of the less important parts of it. So it's it's a it's a complicated concept. It requires a lot of thinking and balance, uh, but it's certainly worth protecting and fighting for. Yes, I would I would compare it to that of a chessboard, as you have freedoms to make decisions, but you don't have untrammeled freedom. Then there's no game to follow. That there's no logic. Oh, there have to be rules. Without rules, there is no game. That's what you'd say. I would say, as there is, you know, there's no rule without walls, so there's no game without rules. And that's why I have no patience for this. these people who bang the table or honk the horns of their semi-trailers demanding freedom. What are they exactly is it they are demanding? And what are they prepared to sacrifice and give up to get it? What are they prepared to take away from other people in order to get it? And that's the, a sloppy thinking that should, should be stopped or should yeah. be. Because right. the interesting thing about freedom is you, it's not freedom from consequence, and with freedom comes responsibility, which seems like we don't talk as much about. We don't talk as much about your responsibilities as a citizen when we're talking about freedom and the rights under the charter. Yeah, and it's, it's, it's you know, I, I live in most, most of the in downtown Toronto. If I look out of my window here, I see a very busy downtown street full of people. I see the streetcar rumbling by. You know, I see a lot of people living together in close proximity. And on the whole, in this city, despite what you made here out there, people get along well, respect each other, and live you know, harmoniously and efficiently and productively together. But you can't do that unless there are rules that we all more or less follow. So just to take one maybe trivial example, but I think quite good example. If you get on the streetcar here, if you get on the Toronto Transit Commission, the TTC, you can't light up a cigarette. You know, there are good reasons for that. But it, you could interpret it as a restriction on your freedom. You should be free to do it. No, you shouldn't, because there's all kinds of other people on the streetcar who will be adversely affected by what you're, what you're going to do. And so you can, willy-nilly, to, to just to satisfy yourself, do something which clearly will hurt other people in close proximity. That's part of the freedom idea. Brilliant. I think that this is a great way to start because it lays the foundation for the conversation about where are our freedoms now? What was your understanding of where we've been and where we're going? How has freedom of expression, in your opinion, changed? Uh, uh, well, it, it's it's under threat, I think. Definitely under threat for all kinds of reasons. I mean, I'm a... I'm a um, Start, as I said, a staunch believer in freedom of expression with very few limits. I think there are some limits, for sure. So, for example, you should not be free, freedom of speech should not enable you to incite violence. I mean, that's clear. That's in the Canadian law. But on the whole, I think freedom should be mostly untrammeled. So, for example, I have no... I don't agree with people who say that social media should be closely regulated to stop people saying offensive, derogatory things, let's say, about other groups. I don't believe that. There's, there's a big push now, including a legislative push, to do that. I'm not in favor of that. Instead, I adopt what, what could probably be described as a kind of naive, almost idealistic approach. I always I believe in the mantra. Some of you back up a little. When I went to England to study a long time ago now, long before you were born, probably before your father was born. But I'm sitting here on my way. I stopped to talk to a man called Jim Gibson, who was the founding president of Brock University and had also been to Oxford. Somebody said you should talk. I didn't know him, but someone said you should talk to him. He's a wise man. You're talking. As you travel across the country to get the ship 
go to England. So I did. He was indeed a wise man, very interesting man. He'd been the private secretary to Prime Minister Mackenzie King. Can you believe that? Anyway, so he said to me, I've never forgot this. He said to me, you know, Philip, he said, at the place where you're going, Oxford University, they really only teach you one thing, but it's a very important thing. They teach you how to distinguish between a good argument and a bad argument. To me, that's a very, that's a very a great truth, and it should be the underpinnings of a civilized society, and the underpinnings, by the way, of an education which produces people who live in that civilized society. You need to be able to know what's a good argument, what's worth thinking about, what's worth discussing, and what's just bullshit, if I can put it that way. Yeah. Yeah, that's very important. And what I see when I look around, when I read the papers, when I go online and all the rest of it, I see a, a failure in many cases to do that. Now, going back to what I was saying before, if somebody is using posting ridiculous, scurrilous, derogatory, offensive tweets, let's say, to me the answer is not to shut them down. To me the answer is, ideally, to have a population that knows what's smart and right, good and correct, and what is, and will look at these tweets and say, that's not true, that's ridiculous, that's laughable, I don't believe that, I reject that. That's the way to do it. So that leads us back, and this is where the naive and idealistic part comes in, that leads us back to really education for young people. People need to be taught, be given the ability to do this. So, for example, more specifically, people need to be taught properly civics, which they're not done by a large in high school now. People are graduating from high school in this city, and I'm sure across the country, who don't understand how this country is governed, who don't understand what the legal principles are which underlie this country don't understand the history of this country, lack the ability to know a good argument from a bad argument. They don't have the skills to do that. They don't have the knowledge to do that. And that makes them vulnerable to rubbish, let's say, on social media and elsewhere, but let's say on social media. But what I would like to do, rather than regulate these things, which is extremely dangerous for the precedent that it sets, what I would like to do is rather is try and get people to recognize that these things for what they are. I definitely I'll give, one, I'll give you one example just to kind of end the point. So um, there's Taylor Green, who, who he says, you know, now a Republican member of the House of Representatives, and I said she's the one who said that the California wildfires of a year or two ago were caused by space lasers planted in space by Jews. Now it's always ludicrous, right? It's laughable. It's farcical. And anybody with half a brain and half half an intellect would look at that just a laugh, which is the appropriate response when somebody says something like that. Not to shut them down, but in this, that particular case, to laugh. So the appropriate response in many other cases is not to shut down the person, not to curtail their freedom of speech, not, not to not allow them to write that or publish that or whatever, but to make certain that the people who see it, who read it, who read, understand it, see it for what it really is. I guess the the danger and why I think you acknowledge that that might be uh, what's considered idealistic or naive is that these algorithms seem to allow people to go for three hours and break something down that is not based on anything in foundation, but you go for so long and uh, our brain feels rewarded when we feel like we're a part of something that other people aren't understanding. There's a reward system of like, nobody knows, I know, and I know better than these people. And these these systems are allowing people at scale to feel that reward system at a very quick pace. I think Flat Earth is another good example where people feel a reward because they feel like they're a part of an in-group and everybody else is part of an out-group. And to your point... That's absolutely true, and I don't think that, I mean, that predates social media practice. But now it can scale, right? Like, that's the big difference, is now these problems can scale. Well, I mean, if you look at some of the great fascist mass movements in relatively recent history, for example, the, you know, the Nazi part in Germany, that was, in my judgment, and not just my, many people would say this, I think, not everybody, but many people would say this, that was eventually millions of people 
joining together because they believed they were, as John Paul Sartre said, they were mediocre people at best, leading drab lives, and, but they embraced what turned out to be an absurd, horrible, dangerous conspiracy theory because it made them feel bet- made them feel more important. It made them feel better. They had camaraderie with other people who believed the same thing. And then in all that, you know, this horrible mass movement uh, uh, developed and was generated, and that's not the only example. So those are kind of precursors of the kind of thing you're describing. I mean, there's great danger out there because people can fall for these, absurd, as you point out, can fall for these absurd ideas easily and for poor reasons that in some respect have nothing to do with the ideas themselves. It's what makes them feel good. As you say, what makes them feel that they know something that other people don't, that they understand something that other people don't. They are therefore smarter and better than other people. I, I think that that's the starting place of the problem. The reason that I agree with you is that I think even the word ideal means something to point towards. And so to be idealistic and say, let's take the best argument and say that that's the best argument. When somebody makes a bad argument, we need to make a better argument. The reason that that works is because there's nothing underneath that that we could point to that would be better. We can't, regulating it to death doesn't actually fix the problem of bad ideas. But having the best idea win out over time ends up having a healthier, more democratic society. And there's just, there's no right answer. But there's a right direction, and that's where when you say ideal, I agree with you, because that's at least we can point in that direction. We can all agree that that's the direction to move in, and it's a challenge because it's not perfect. It doesn't fix it, but at least we can all agree that that's the right direction to point in, right? Yes, although I would say this. uh, It's a very laborious process. There's a lot of heavy heavy lifting involved, and it's a battle that never ends. That's a battle that will never be won. You know, the price of liberty is eternal vigilance, right? So the price for freedom of expression is an eternal battle, if you will, to, 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 to show people that some of these things, these ideas, these beliefs that are being purveyed are ridiculous and not worth accepting or even considering. So it's a long, laborious, never-ending battle will go on till the end of civilization. But that doesn't mean you, you abandon it. You just have to do it, that's all. Absolutely. So do you do you have specific examples that you feel like are worth going through in regards to our change in understanding of freedom of expression, areas where you see real battlefields existing? Yes, sure. I've got lots, but let's focus on one that I feel particularly strongly about, and that is post-secondary education, universities. Now, again, I'm an old-fashioned romantic, right? Um, I used to believe or, that universities are a place for, for unimpeded thought and discussion and argument, mostly for its own sake. Now that's just because it makes you, just because it makes your life more rewarding and interesting if as a university student, you know, you've thought about lots of things, you've talked about lots of difficult issues with your, with your, with your peers and you've been taught interesting. It just enriches your life. It's, that's the only reason for it. And if that you take only that away, You've taken a lot of it away. So that's the old-fashioned romantic view of what post-secondary education is. That has been almost completely abandoned, in my opinion, uh, in at least two major respects. The first is that universities, even some of these so-called better universities, have become essentially vocational uh, schools. And they pride themselves on it. They advertise uh, that that's what they are. If you take the subway in Toronto, there are... There are ads in the subway for universities telling you that you'll get a good job if you just go to that university and sign up for some particular course. That, by the way, is incredibly foolish because by the time you graduate, the world will change. It changes at an extraordinary pace. And the kind of job that you thought you were going to get when you started probably won't exist by the time you graduate. Anyway, that's another matter. But the idea that you go to university to learn things, to, 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 you know, to, to develop ideas, to develop you know, uh, a richness in your of intellect that's been abandoned. Now you go there to learn practical stuff that will help you get a job, which probably won't exist, as I say, by the time you graduate. That's one thing. The other thing, of course, is the whole wokeness business. The whole idea now that at universities some ideas are okay, but others are not, and more, more, more seriously, that the ideas that are not okay, since somebody's judgment. Are ideas that really should not be expressed. 
uh, should be shouted down. Uh, professors who may espouse them should be fired. Speakers from outside who want to talk about them should be, as they say, deplatformed. Now, it's the exact antithesis, in my view, of what a university should be. It's the exact antithesis of freedom of speech in a university setting. And it's very, very uh, unfortunate. Do you have any examples of things that you feel like are not allowed to be said or that are unpopular to say right now? Well, Aaron, there's so many examples. I mean, I can't particularly give you a list of them, but I'm sure you know as well as I, as well as, as your listeners for the most part. There's all kinds of things now that you say, you say at your peril. Um, so I'll give you one example. This is not directly pertinent to universe. Well, it is actually. It's in the book, Nothing Left to Lose. And it's coming from the West Coast is the infamous Stephen Galloway case. I don't know if you're familiar with that. No. Stephen Galloway was a uh, professor at UBC. I think you're a graduate of UBC, right? I am. But he was not in the law school, though. He was in the creative writing department. And he had an affair with one of his students uh, and was subject to disciplinary proceedings as a result of that. By the way, Stephen Galloway was not just a professor of creative writing, he was also a very highly regarded, yellow-winning novelist, wrote, amongst other things, The Cellist of Sarajevo, which is widely regarded as an excellent book. Anyway, he was essentially subjected to a sort of a, a, well, a secret, almost kangaroo court process, uh, looking at what he did, but looking at the allegations that had been made against him. Uh, the results were never really public, made public, and he was fired. His life was essentially ruined. So a number of writers, including some very eminent writers, like Margaret Atwood, Michael Ondaatje, people like that, were a letter to UBC, which has become known as the open letter, which they said, they didn't defend Stephen Galloway. They didn't say he didn't do it, or if he did do it, it was okay. What they said was, you as a lawyer will appreciate this, they said he'd been denied procedural justice. He'd been denied the opportunity to represent himself properly and all the other things that come along with procedural justice. That's all. And these writers, including you know, very eminent, powerful people like Margaret Atwood, were vilified, were publicly vilified and attacked to, for daring to say this. And that's an example, I think, of the kind of, of the kind of thing I'm talking about. I mean, another example has, has to do with you know, the infamous... Uh, attacks on J.K. Rowling, the Harry Potter author, because of her views on transgender people, which has seemed to be which has seemed to be not acceptable in this day and age. Well, maybe they are, maybe they're not. Maybe you agree with, maybe you don't. But you don't shout her down, vilify her, you know, heap obscenities upon her because of views she's expressed that you don't agree with. So that, you know, this is widespread. It's endemic. It's rotting the whole system. I. I think where I'm coming from on this is that I see this as a problem of educating people on where their rights come from, on where their responsibilities come from. And I think the reason that the U.S. is in somewhat of a different circumstance is that they have a story that roots in the day that they became independent and that there there is a, a myth and ethos around that story that inspires them to take their freedom seriously. And I would say that the United States is more protective of their freedom because they understand it better, because they can root it back to a place where for Canada, it was inherited. It was some of these rights came from a place that they can't take full credit for. So the story is a little bit more mixed. I think well, key, key parts of our history, like World War II, um, World War I, give us this understanding of people fought for these rights. People helped build us the, the capacity to act independently and to have a voice and to have a seat at the table and to be independent in a way. But I don't think it has that clear story that allows people to understand where their freedoms come from. And then we start to see people not appreciate them in the way that you're describing because they don't have that deep narrative that allows them to understand and appreciate where it's coming from. Well, it's complicated, Aaron. I mean, you, you speak of the United States and their deep respect for freedoms. I'm sure that's true. But of course, one of the freedoms for which vast swathes of the United States population uh, wants to cling on to is the freedom or the right to bear arms, which is in the U.S. amendment to the U.S. Constitution, which of course is mis misinterpreted, misconstrued. 
but has created untold, untold difficulty and, 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 and mayhem in the United States. In Canada, it's true what you say, although we do have the Charter of Rights and Freedoms and have had since, what, 1982. And that, I think, was a Although I was initially not faithful of it, reasons that don't really matter now, probably now, but I think it's had a huge effect on the country, a very beneficial effect on the country. Although I'm concerned with what seems to be happening now with increasing cavalier use of the notwithstanding clause in the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. But at least we now have something that's codified, well thought out, and important, and constitutionally entrenched. Yes, and Section 1 sounds like one that other people have some concerns about how it's being used. But to your point, I think one of my main concerns is that it does feel like self-censorship is growing um, yes. at a very high pace. I have people, when I explain my position on land acknowledgements, it's like there's a sense of relief in them that they're not crazy. Um, when I explain my perspective on land acknowledgements, it's that... There, it's important that we take care of the land and that we do not need to mention specific nations in order to succeed at that. I want people to care about the land that they live in, not for my benefit as an indigenous person, but because you have to live here and it would be swell if you took care of the place while you're here. And that's one of the teachings in indigenous culture that's really key that doesn't make it into some of the more Western laws, this idea that we need to operate closer to harmony um, and take only what needed and to be stewards of this land. That doesn't seem to be as paramount. And so there's a value in what's being proposed but I think it's being gone about in the wrong way and then it's just obligated now everybody has it in their email signatures everybody has a statement about it and if you don't well then what are you up to why aren't you why aren't you following why aren't you falling in line well it's interesting you refer to self-censorship I think this is an important and growing problem and in many respects it goes out of fear you know the fear that if you say something that many people won't agree with you will be subjected not just to criticism that's fair game in a free and democratic society, you know, people will criticize, that's fine. But not just criticism, scurrilous attack, uh, trolling on the internet, and all of those bad things. There's ample, there's ample examples of that. So people think to themselves, oh, you know what, I better be careful what I say. It, you know, even though I want to say something that I think is important and well thought out, I know many will disagree, violently perhaps, so I better be careful what I say. Maybe I just won't say it for the sake of peace and quiet. I'll give you an example personal to me. So my new book, which is about anti-Semitism, uh, takes some positions that, what comes out in a couple of weeks, takes some positions that I know I've been warned by people, but I, I didn't have to be warned, I, I know will be highly controversial. And will open me up to criticism, which is fine. In fact, not only is that fine, I welcome that. I welcome a spirited debate about what I regard as important ideas. So people said to me, you know, Philip, you know, friends of mine, you better be careful. Do you really want to say that? I mean, is this you know, just think. I mean, you're, people are going to attack you. Do you really want to say that? And these the people who, my friends who said that are you know, well-educated, sophisticated, democratic, liberal people. They're not, you know, and they were saying, be careful what you say. And so once that kind of idea creeps into our society, you've got to be careful what you say, you know. Even though it may be important, even though you may have thought it out carefully, even though some may agree with you, be careful what you say, because who knows what will happen. That's a very dangerous thing. Could you elaborate a little bit more on that? Because being careful with what you say, to your point, is a good thing. You don't want to say things off the cuff, which we've seen. Um, oh, yes, I do. Yes, although you should be free to do that. That's part of my, my, my thing. You should be free to do that, say stupid things off the cuff. No, but I'm not talking about that. I mean, I'll give you a very specific example. So, free in my book, for example, I am critical of the way in which the state of Israel dealt with the Palestinians and the Palestinian problem. Now, I'm not alone in that. Lots of people are, uh, including members of the Jewish community. It's a controversial point, but many people feel very strongly in the, in the opposite way. And you can be sure that if at all you say the state of Israel is behaving very badly vis-a-vis -vis the Palestinians, for example, through settlements in the West Bank, you will be attacked. You can be sure of that. And you will be attacked 
and large numbers of people. I predict this. You know, watch, watch for it, Eric. Watch for it. It's coming for me. I predict this, and people say, "You got to be careful about that." You know, it's a respectable point of view. Other people have it, but you got to be careful about it. You got to weigh up. You really want to see what will the personal consequences be for you. Now, I don't care. Uh, uh, I'm, whatever the consequences are, fine with me. But a lot of people quite reasonably do care. You know, they say, "Well, I, you know, I have a family. Do I really want to expose them, perhaps, to this?" I mean, that's the kind of thing you have to be very concerned about. Not stupid off-the-cuff statements, but when you start to be reluctant or people are encourage you to be careful about saying and voicing imp important but controversial ideas, then our society is in trouble. Because the, one of the great engines that drives our society, a country like Canada, I'm a great Canadian patriot, by the way, what drives like great liberal democracy like Canada is freedom of expression. Everybody thinking they have the opportunity, put their ideas out. They can be rejected if it's decided they're not any good. But to put their ideas out and argue for them and listen to the arguments on the other side, that's a huge, important driver for free liberal democracy. Once it starts being constricted and people start getting nervous about it, then we're in trouble. And I think the point you were making earlier is that when you have people like a J.K. Rowling who don't feel, who have... No, like, because there's limitations to how free a person feels financially. If you're on a budget and you can't afford to lose your job, you're going to be more careful with what you say. When you're a person like J.K. Rowling, who never needs to worry about monetary value ever again, and you're still hesitant, then there's something going on because you should feel as free as possible to speak what you have to say without the concerns of repercussions or consequences or like she's already made her success. And when individuals who are able to speak don't feel comfortable to, the, the trickle-down effect to the average everyday Canadians are going to be impacted. I think this point you air, though, is true that J.K. Rowling, I think, is the richest woman in England. And she's a billionaire, so she doesn't have to worry about the financial side of things. But people have, there are other forms of wealth, too. For sure. If people are concerned about, well, what's this going to do to my reputation? Am I going to go from being a beloved author to being like a controversial uh, uh, person with reviled in some quarters? Am I going to be subject to personal attack? Am I going to be yelled at in the street? You know, uh, is graffiti going to be sprawled on the wall, wall of my house? Am I going to need to buy, you have security guards to go with me when I go somewhere? So there's different kinds of wealth, different kinds of things you need. M money is certainly helpful for sure. But it's not yet the answer to it all. I, I couldn't agree with you more. My only point is for everyday Canadians like myself who's on who's on a budget, I immediately like the feeling is like, oh, I might be more bold if if my finances were taken. That's the average person's feeling towards being able to say what they have to say. If I had a little bit more of cushion, I'd be able to uh, have my thoughts and, and I understand I understand that. I understand that. It's it's complicated. I don't want to see I don't want to appear to be ridiculously, you know, utopian or idealistic. I understand it's complicated and a lot depends on your individual circumstances. But, you know, the famous saying that the arc of history bends slowly, but it bends towards justice. I'm coming over to that. Maybe Martin Luther King said that originally. The same thing applies to ideas like this. It's not flat out simple. No, it's not binary. It's complicated. But the tendency, the push, the direction, the inclinations have to be towards the right ideal, as you talked about earlier. Yeah. So are you, say to yourself, if you're in, in an employment situation, if I say this, which I really believe, let's say, my boss is going to be really mad at me. He's not going to like me. And I may be in trouble when it comes to my job. So you say, i got to be really careful about this. I've got like three babies at home to feed. I've got to be careful about this. But, but the, your inclination should be towards speaking your mind as long as it's reasonable and well thought out. Um, even though on occasion we decide now is not the time. So do you feel that this has gone up in recent years? And if so, where do you see that, that mod of that change that you're, you're talking about where it's become more difficult? Because I think of maybe like questions about, um, Afghanistan, like, was it, was it popular to say that maybe we shouldn't be going into these countries? Do you feel like there's been an uptick in, in recent years? I think, that, I think there's been a tremendous uptake in people being very reluctant to say what they want to say. You know, I'm not now, I'm talking now about policy matters, ideas, government direction, or all the things that matter. 
tremendous uptick in it. And uh, you, you know, people are recusing themselves from the debate. Now, I don't want to get involved in that. It's not worth the trouble. And I'm concerned about that. And I think there's been a vast change in society over the past 20 years or so, for the, for the, for the worse. Part of it is, has a, is a result of a huge growth, something I dislike very intensely, which is identity politics. So I'll give you an example. So Barack Obama, you may remember him, um, burst upon the political scene, I think it was in 2004, when he gave the keynote speech to the Democratic National Convention. One of the things he said in that speech, I'm paraphrasing now, but it's famous, was he said something like this. He said, there are no black Americans. There are no white Americans. There are no Latino Americans. There are only Americans. No, very idealistic statement, massive applause, but that would be almost completely rejected today because now it's very important. Are you black? Are you white? Are you Latino? What are you? And whatever you are, there's an inclination to think that other groups, people not like yourself, may be in opposition to you. They may be trying to take something away from you. They may be critical of you when, in fact, you are better than they are. So there's this, it's, I, I, my feeling is that identity politics has been enormously divisive it, because it emphasizes the, the respects in which we are different. And we are different, all of us, in various ways. But it ignores the fact we are also very similar in very many ways, and we have similar things that are important or should be important to us, and we should pursue them collectively, one of them being freedom of expression. I agree with you. The thing that I receive very commonly is somebody in the beginning of a conversation saying something like, uh, I, I understand that I'm a straight white male, um, and that's how the conversation begins, and that's bizarre to me because I wouldn't do the same like unless I'm prefacing it with like a cultural perspective I may say that I'm indigenous but that isn't something that I think is overly pertinent to everyday conversations where it does feel like the idea of like I personally feel uncomfortable with the idea of white privilege and it's not to say that the term doesn't have some sort of bearing for people um, understanding that a certain group of people have been more successful and, and maybe acted Unfairly, Joseph Trutch being a good BC example of somebody who used their authority and power in a negative way, but the vast amount of people over human civilizations have struggled and been in poverty and had to overcome incredible hardships, and we've done that more or less cohesively over the time human beings have existed. And I have people who have white skin whose parents went to Indian residential school. And I have people with dark skin who have received tremendous opportunities throughout their life, which is fantastic. But to use something like the color of your skin as a determining factor of where you are in a, in a hierarchy to begin with, I don't think is appropriate because it only tells a little teeny tiny piece of the story um, and lacks context. And I think, um, as, as we're talking about, Martin Luther King Jr. said, judge me on the content of my character, not on the color of my skin. And yes, that seems yeah. also an unpopular um, uh, statement to make. It was 1963 speech from the Lincoln Memorial. Yeah, very, probably one of the greatest political speeches of American, American history. Um, well, I, I, I agree with you. Look, you can't minimize the fact that there have been great injustices in history. You can't minimize the fact that some uh, groups, because of their various attributes or ethnicity or whatever, have been treated very badly. Uh, you mentioned white privilege. You can't ignore the fact that white privilege has been a feature of certainly of our society for a long time, to some extent, perhaps still it is. You can't, I'm not suggesting for a minute that these things don't exist and are not important. You can't ignore the fact, for example, the members of the LGBT community, etc., were very badly treated for a long period of time. That seems to be getting better now, unfortunately. You can't pretend these things don't happen or, or don't even exist today. But what you can do is say, we recognize all that. But recognizing it and acting on it is the most important defining features of who we are is another thing. What we have to concentrate on is the respects in which we have common interests. You know, not ignoring the fact that there are differences and should be eliminated, but to, we have to emphasize the common interests we have and pursue them collectively for the, the, good, for the good of everybody. Agreed. Can we, to wrap up the uh, conversation on your first, the first book we were discussing, 
Can you explain what areas you'd like to see maybe policy changes or perspective changes that would help re-enshrine these rights to make sure that we don't go any farther? Is there any thoughts you have well, on it? people that might be interested in that is to contact your local bookseller and buy a copy of the book and read it. I would urge people to do that. <laughs> Yeah, I think there are not. It's again, it's complicated. There's no kind of panacea for this. It's complicated, and I and I list a number of things. Well, at the end of this book, there's a what I call the Citizens Manifesto, which I list a number of things which I think people, citizens, you, I, uh, everybody, Tim, should do. And they you know they include things like, for example, it sounds almost childlike. Be careful of the police. We haven't been talked about the police. I've got all kinds of views on the police. Um, support independent journalism. Very important. Sorry, did you say police? Please, yes, the oh, police. I just wanted to make sure. Keep an eye out of the police. For reasons that we all know. Um, try and change the direction of post-secondary education. We talked about that a little bit. There are various government reforms that I think would be a good idea. So, for example, I'm concerned about, under our constitutional structure, the predominance of the executive branch enormous power that resides in the hands of the Prime Minister. Uh, the, the extent to which the executive, the legislature is clearly subordinate to the executive. Things like that. I mean, the, so there are constitutional things we have to worry about. Our Prime Minister, in his uh, first election, when he was elected, pledged to introduce proportional representation and reneged on that, that pledge sometime afterwards because he decided it wouldn't be good for him politically. So, you know, which means that there's a substantial minorities in this country that are not really represented in Parliament. So there's all kinds of things in the mix, uh, from big, big things to what may seem like technical legal things. But it's a, it's a complicated picture. But as I say, there's no panacea. Best thing to do is to buy the book and read it. There you go. Could we talk about anti-Semitism? When does it release? Sorry? When does it release? March the 7th is the official date. But the book actually exists. You see there, and it, there. it's beautiful. So my friend of mine looked at the cover and said, it looks like an eye chart to me. <laughs> uh, how did the book come about for you? Well, it's, it's a similar story to the Nothing Left to Lose. Um, somebody rang me up, and a publisher rang me up and said, I, I, I want you to write a book on anti-Semitism. And I said, I don't think so. So he said, no, no, just quote, unquote, you're the guy. I thought, well, as it happens, I had nothing particularly going on at the moment. I wasn't didn't have a project. It was during the pandemic or in the early days of the pandemic uh, when all anybody was talking about was the pandemic. So I thought this might be anti-Semitism might be a good antidote to the pandemic. So maybe I should get. There was also a personal element in it, which I talk about in the book. Um. My my father was Jewish, my mother was not, which created certain identity issues for me and my family. Uh, my father, my grandparents fled what is was then Russia, is now eastern Ukraine, but who knows, maybe Russia again one of these days, and did the, the usual Jewish migrants trek across Europe, ending up in England, and their two sons, one of them being my father, came to North America. So there was a kind of a personal thing about Jewish history, the Jewish identity, the, the, what the nature of anti-Semitism, what it is, how it works, that I had a kind of stake in. So anyway, I sat down to write this book, and I learned a great deal of the writing of it, which is always a big payoff, of course, if you learn a lot when you're doing something. It's the biggest payoff. And I'm proud of what I've done. I think it's, it's good. I think it's going to be controversial, which is fine, as we've been talking about. I think it's good, and I think it's it's novel. I think it it has some new ideas about a very important and unfortunately very old problem. Do you? It's interesting that this book is coming about because it feels like there's also been an increase in anti-Semitism, particularly in the last. I, I can't. It's been going on for a very very long time, but it feels like there's been an increase in recent years. Well, that is the popular view. Um, I talk about that in the book to some, in some respects. Um, but one of the important points I try to make in the book is, look, um, every anti-Semitic act is not like every other anti-Semitic act. 
There are different kinds of different degrees of gravity of different significance. And you can treat each one as if it's the same as every other one, because it's not. And if you do treat each anti-Semitic act or utterance as if it's the same as every other one, what you do is really undermine the whole concept, because if everything's important, nothing's important. I talk about that, and I, in my opinion, there's what I call a kind of an anti-Semitic industry as develops, with all kinds of people, including non-Jewish politicians, trying to outdo themselves in condemning anti-Semitism, appointing special envoys in the case of governments, adopting absurd, sweeping, comprehensive definitions of what anti-Semitism and so on, so on. That's not doing anybody, including the world Jewish community, any favors at all. So one of the things I propose in the book is a kind of a typology of anti-Semitism, ranging from ones that are not acts of anti-Semitism are not particularly important, like scoring graffiti on a wall, for example. That's not nice. That's not a nice thing to do. In fact, I live, my apartment here in Toronto is above an Aroma coffee bar. An Aroma is an Israeli chain. And periodically, you scroll on the walls of the building and things like, you know, Jews go home, or, you know, die Zionist, or something like that. Not nice. Shouldn't be done. Uh, but the anti-graffiti people come and paint over it as quickly as possible. But, but very different from many of the egregious, sometimes violent acts of anti-Semitism you, you see sometimes, and extremely different from the institutionalization of anti-Semitism. Once, you know, universities start using it as a deciding who to admit to medical school or not, for example, or once governments start incorporating it into government policies or rules or attitudes, once newspaper editorial policies start reflecting it, that's a different thing altogether. So I urge in my book, I propose, I think it's important, to see these things for what they are, to not treat, treat each one as if it's the same as every other instance, and to develop a proportionate response, you know, to largely ignore things that don't matter, and take very seriously the things that do matter, and know which is which. Brilliant. It sounds like you're also helping individuals sort of think these issues through, yes. and I think that that becomes more and more important as we get, like, we're in this, call it influencer culture, where people are able to choose the voices they want to listen to in a different way than we've seen in the past. At least in the past, we had newspapers, and they'd highlight the key kind of arguments for an issue. Now we have individuals who kind of go on one side, and then that's their only perspective. At least you're trying to provide that balance for people. Uh, thinking has become a little bit out of date, I think. Uh, a little passe, it's thinking, but we should try and reinstate it as, a, as an art form. Philip, I'm so excited to read your upcoming book. I have your book here. I'm very excited to continue to read it. I, I really appreciate it. Go ahead. Let me know what you think when you read it. I will. I, I really appreciate your time. Um, I know these are difficult issues. I appreciate your bravery. Um, agree, disagree. Um, it doesn't matter. The value is that we're able to have these conversations. And I think that that becomes increasingly important. So I appreciate you being willing to do this. Today. Thank you. Awesome. Thank you, Tim. We're lurking in the background there. So thank you, Tim. How did that turn out? That was very good.